you please be seated. We're uh, almost done our study of Second Peter. We turn to the end of uh, his second letter, chapter 3, this evening. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, we come to chapter 3, verse 10, down to verse 16. <clears throat> You'll remember that the uh, false teachers that he has had to deal with at the end of this letter have been saying, the, the Lord's not coming back, there is no judgment, this is it. This is the way it's always been, this is the way it will always be. And uh, we need to enjoy our time as much as we can in the wrong ways. Well, uh, Peter corrects that and uh, has already spoken of the coming of the Lord and now describes it in the words of Jesus himself, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our brother Paul, according uh, to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in, of them, in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your steadfastness, being led astray by the error of the wicked. Well, let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, as you have inspired these very scriptures, that we should not be led away, but led astray, but indeed persevere. We wish not only to understand these things, but to know you better, to have our hope in you more, to have our lives more lived in light of that day that will make all things clear and in which every tear shall be wiped from our eyes. We Say, come, Lord Jesus, and we look again in hope that you would fulfill your promise and teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has a great deal to say about the future by uh, one reckoning uh, over, uh, over a quarter of the Bible is predictive in uh, what it teaches. But what difference does the future make? Why consider the future at all? Well, it's a good question. Let me begin by illustrating it to you this way. In many of your lifetimes, the greatest perceived threat to America was the Soviet Union, which Ronald Reagan called the evil empire. And the vast majority of prophetic writers at that time, that is to say people in America that were writing books on prophecy, were saying that what we are now watching is the very end time, the Soviet Union uh, it, it, what's happening in the Soviet Union is unfolding of the great end times scenario. Soviet Russia 
is none other than Rosh of Gog and Magog, and Rosh would soon be invading Israel, and the world would be at Armageddon. Well, didn't quite turn out that way, but my point in telling you the story is there was a Christian in the Soviet satellite state of Romania named Joseph Zone, who had been put in jail several times for his outspoken testimony. He wrote a work called The Christian Manifesto in which he outlined the basics of a Christian society over against communism. And he, he tells this story in that book. He, he says in, in, in 1947, he told a friend, communism is an experiment that's failed. It won't be able to fulfill any of its promises, and nobody believes in it anymore. Because of this, it will one day collapse on its own. When communism collapses, somebody has to be there to help rebuild society. I believe our job as Christian teachers is to train leaders so that they'll be ready and capable to rebuild our society on a Christian basis. Now, to my surprise, uh, he says, here's what my friend said to me. Joseph, you are wrong. Communism will triumph over all the world because this is the movement of the Antichrist. And when the communists take over the United States, they will have no restraining force left. Then they will kill all the Christians. And we have only one job to do. Alert the world and make ready to die. A few years later, he says, my friend was forced to leave Romania. He came to the U.S. and settled down. And then I was forced into exile, and I moved to the U.S. as well. Since then, my friend has not done anything for Romania. He simply waited for the final triumph of communism and the annihilation of Christianity. You say, well, what did Joseph do? Um, well, he, he, he started what he was talking about. He started a training program for Christian leaders in Romania who were able to remain. And so it was on December 25th, 1989, the Ceausescu communist regime fell. But by that year, by 1989, Joseph Tsone had trained more than a thousand Christian leaders, teachers, missionaries of varieties of sorts who went all over Romania to begin to rebuild that historically Christian nation. Uh, today, Tsone said, these uh, people are the leaders in churches and evangelical denominations, schools, clinics, and key Christian ministries. They were ready. Well, I, I'm not just here to recall some interesting Cold War history. My, my point is this. Everyone is living his or her life according to some view of the future. You are taking action or not taking action. You are making a direction this way or that. You are setting goals or not. You, you are supporting causes or you are failing to support causes all as a result of what, what you expect. What do you expect? What do you believe? What is your hope? Well, in our passage, Peter is driving us to see one very big point. Christ is coming. We covered that some last week, and now in this passage, he is coming, and when he does, the world and all that it contains and all of its works is going to be laid bare, destroyed. God is going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And in light of this, you need to make some basic choices. Uh, namely, 
what are you living for? Are, are you going to live for everything that is certain to be destroyed and come to nothing? Or do you want to live so that you will have an everlasting inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth and the home of righteousness where we will dwell with the Lord? Well, let's consider this vision of the future as Peter has laid it out briefly. And then I'd like to point out four ways, he says, that we must hope accordingly or really live accordingly. So uh, Peter had already talked about the coming of the Lord and why that's been delayed. Where we picked up in verse 10, he says, uh, even though there's going to be a delay, which always comes up in this discussion, some kind of delay, but then there's this matter of uncertainty. But, he says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief. Um, there's, not always, uh, there, there's always not only a matter of delay, but this matter of an unknown time. And if these words sound familiar, you're not imagining it. He's, he's using the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, You do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Well, Peter likewise warns here that the coming of Christ will be like a thief, but when it comes, boy, will you know, the heavens will pass away with a roar, the earth and its works will be burned up, the uh, elements melt in the heat. Uh, some of you have, it will be exposed or laid bare. Uh, in any case, Christ's return will not only destroy this current world and its systems and works, it will reveal the proud works of man for what they are. But, he says, we, in holiness and godliness, we are looking forward to the Lord's return with a new heavens and a new earth and the home of righteousness, a world of human life that is far greater than anything we've known. In fact, the, the Bible even st stretches language to say, as if to say, we don't really even have language or categories to describe what will be. The Lord's words in Matthew 13 are appropriate here. How the righteous, he says, are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What does this mean? Again, it's, it's just stretching the boundaries of language. The biblical descriptions of that world to come whet our appetite for something that will completely overwhelm our, our imagination and senses. They teach us that the life to come just surpasses our present power to understand or appreciate. We have this longing, but for what? We can hardly say. A creation that is now subjected to the curse on account of man's sin is glorious enough. But what will happen when, as Paul says, the creation is liberated from that bondage of corruption to the glorious liberty of the children of God. What does it mean? Well, it will be the greatest thing we could conceive or more. And meanwhile, we are told that we should not only look forward to, but hasten the coming of the Lord. Hasten it? Like, um, hurry up, Lord. Uh, how, how are we supposed to hasten the coming day of the Lord? Well, as we said before, um, the Lord said that the, the end would not come until the gospel had first been preached to all the earth. And uh, evangelism and missions, I suppose, then do hasten that day. And we remember the Lord's parable about a, a master who's going away on a long journey, and he's leaving work for his servants to do while he's gone. So I suppose that that work is 
in some sense, hastening it. We pray for the Lord's return, and so hasten it. We pray with the ancient church in its, uh, uh, interestingly, in its Aramaic, Maranatha, which uh, means then, come, O Lord, your kingdom come, we pray. But in, in any case, the point is that um, we, we are not as, as those believers in Thessalonica were. We're not just saying, oh, the Lord's coming. Let's just uh, wait around and uh, um, hope that uh, he's coming really soon. Oh, no. We're not waiting in a lazy or passive way. It's the opposite. Perhaps uh, hastening um, doesn't, doesn't fully convince, but we, we hasten the day by being active and seeking to serve and doing those things that he's called us to do, those works that he has laid out to it for us, and so fulfill those desires. Well, let me also point out that in verse 10, the coming of the Lord, little theological point here, what happens when this coming of the Lord happens? The day of the Lord is not going to usher in a thousand years of peace, but rather a fiery destruction of this creation and the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. I point this out because some people in the ancient church and then uh, again very popularly in since the 19th century, have thought that when the Lord returns, it's going to bring in a millennial reign with risen saints on the earth, and then will be the great judgment. But uh, many passages like this uh, have this together. The Lord's return, uh, that day brings the end of all things. You also remember we read at the beginning of the service how Paul said he has this hope for the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. And people say, well, I, I understand. I know what's going on there. There's, there's a resurrection of the just, and then a thousand years, and then the resurrection of the unjust. And some people have concluded that from the book of Revelation, that there's going to be a first resurrection of the saints with Christ, of the just, and then after that, the resurrection of the unjust, and then the last day. Uh, that's a misunderstanding of Revelation, which I'll have to cover some other time. The first and second death being parallel to the first and second resurrection in the book. But anyway, Jesus said, The hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. The hour in which all hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The hour of that resurrection leaves no room for a thousand years or any other such thing. So my point is several passages collapse this together and don't, don't leave any room for a thousand years simply to point it out to you if you're thinking through these things. Paul explains that uh, that day of the Lord does bring three things. It brings the return of Christ and his mighty angels it uh, is the day when his people enter into their glory, and he gives those of us who are troubled rest. He comes to be glorified in his saints and be admired among those who believe. And third, it brings in the just judgment of this world in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Well, behold, he makes all things new. And so our hope, the hope of the world, is this great and awesome day of the Lord. A terrible day, a wonderful day, but uh, this is what we look forward to. Now, the point of the passage is, in light of this future I've sketched for you, we need to maintain four things. 
we need to maintain four things. The hope of Christ's coming, the holiness of a clear conscience, the heart for the lost, and the help of the Scriptures. Let me go through each of these with you. That's the name of my sermon, by the way. Hope, holiness, heart, and help. Um, These are the four things that we need to keep setting before ourselves so that uh, we are longing as we should for that day. First, hope. The hope of Christ's coming. Verse 14 begins, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. In fact, he uses that same verb, looking forward, or looking for in verses 12, and then 13, and then 14 again to hammer it home. It doesn't mean we're just looking up in the sky, of course. It means we're eagerly expecting, looking forward to his coming with the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter knows that we we are already looking for these promises, but he has to emphasize it because those who have fallen away have forsaken this very hope. Remember we saw before They said, look, everything's gone along this way as it's always gone since the fathers fell asleep. What are we waiting for? This is not, there there is no future hope. Well, even though we believe that Christ is coming again in power and glory to judge the world, you and I have to ask ourselves, are, are, are we eagerly awaiting it? Are we looking forward to it? I mean, we believe in it, but are we looking forward to it? Um, that is to say, how, I have to ask myself, how much do I think about it? How would it affect me now if I kept this future in view? I mean, when we're in suffering, it's not so hard. When life is pretty good, it's, it's kind of out of our mind. What difference, though, would it make? Well, if I were sure, if I were sure that Jesus were returning tomorrow, it would profoundly affect my life today. I think it would affect all of our lives. I think husbands and wives wouldn't argue about petty things if they were looking forward to Jesus returning tomorrow, or even if it was a year from now, or two years from now. I bet the churches wouldn't be arguing over minor matters. I bet the people would rather make up and forgive one another than fight. I bet we wouldn't be wasting our time in frivolous ways if we only had so much time, and then Christ was coming. So here's the practical power of hope. The more that we are conscious of these things and looking longingly and expectingly toward this future, well, we find that there's hardly anything more practical or powerful to motivate us today. And yet we don't think about it, and we don't have the expectant, longing mindset that we should. Can you see how much it would make a difference, though? So the first thing that we need to maintain, especially in a comfortable life, a comfortable country, and a comfortable world, is this hope, this eager expectation, this anticipation of Christ's coming. Second, we need holiness, or the holiness of a clear conscience. Continuing in verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. In peace without spot and blameless. One writer summarizes the look of hope must produce the life of holiness. So once again, if we're going to meet the Lord very soon, if the Lord is coming back very soon, we would just find it natural, wouldn't we, to maintain a clear conscience before him. Um, But because of this delay and this uncertainty, 
um, we don't do this quite as diligently. We, we might think about, well, we'll, we'll change our lives later. Um, Peter commends to us diligence, that is, uh, giving our attention to this constantly. It, it, uh, diligence implies making every effort or exerting ourselves. It doesn't happen accidentally. It requires focus. The forces of this world and the flesh are so great that unless we apply some diligence, we will forget and so be carried along in the wrong direction. Be diligent. Brief note, Paul uses that word several times. Um, He loves the word diligent. Chapter 1, we're to be diligent in growing in Christian character, right? Give all diligence to add to your faith, virtue, and so forth. We're to be diligent in pursuing our Christian experience and maturity, being diligent to make your call and election sure. Peter himself says, I'm going to be diligent, same word, to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I'm gone. And, uh, well, there's a lot of diligence in this book and under various names. But in view of Christ's coming, we must be especially diligent that we might be at peace with him, spotless and blameless. At, at peace meaning that, um, you know, uh, we, we have uh, an open communication, an open uh, conscience before him, right? If our conscience bothers us because we know that we've disobeyed God, then like Adam, we're hiding in the garden from God. We're avoiding him. We're not at peace. So... It works this way with your relationship with others. So maybe you have a, a friend, and yeah, it's not gone well. Like, you know, he's done things to you, and you've done things to him, right? You're, you're not at peace. You, you have this something between you, something you've done, perhaps. And uh, you, you, you see him coming down the, the shopping aisle, right, in the supermarket, and you, and you duck down the other aisle, right? Um, you, you don't want to see him. Yeah. When our conscience is not at peace, this is how we behave. We must be diligent to maintain peace with God so that we are always eager and expectant and looking forward to being with him. And when Peter says that we are to be spotless and blameless, he doesn't mean perfect. In fact, he's used exactly the opposite words that he used of the false teachers in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13, he called them spots and blemishes, these uh, wicked, ungodly people, spots and blemishes. Here he says spotless and literally blemishless, just a little A before both of those words in the Greek. Um, So the point is, if we're to be longing for Christ's appearing, if we're going to be looking for the Lord, we, we, we can't be ashamed all the time because of something that we don't have a clear conscience for, Right? We need to have the holiness of a clear conscience, and then we will long as we need to. Third, we need a heart. If I only had a heart. A heart for the lost. A heart for the lost. Okay, uh, brothers and sisters, it is hard to wait for Jesus, right? Um, Even in this, as I admitted earlier, a pleasant country, a pleasant life, considering the history of the world and where we could be today, Even we long for this to be over and to be with the Lord. And we say, yeah, come, come, Lord Jesus. We're we're tired of this wait. But, verse 15 reminds us, Peter says, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. 
his patience, his delay, as he's reinforcing what he told us back in verse 9. Remember, the Lord isn't slow or slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay, we find it hard to wait because we are ready to be with the Lord forever. But Peter is saying in so many words, you know, you, you do need to get your focus off yourself and what you're going through and to put your focus on all these other people who still need to hear the good news for whom the Lord is waiting himself. Your trials are real, but they are nothing compared with that eternal vengeance of fire that Peter has just described uh, that unrepentant sinners will be soon experiencing. And the more that we are focusing on ourselves, the more we feel about bad about ourselves, come Lord Jesus, the more that we focus on others and have the heart of God, we will focus on the work of the gospel. And then I think even the, our trials won't seem quite as important anymore. Okay? We need a heart for the lost. And as I said earlier, the Lord has told us that the gospel of the kingdom must first be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Not just a theological fact, but a practical motivation that we should have a heart for the work. We need to make God's heart our heart, and a diligent perseverance will rest on maintaining the hope of his coming, the holiness of a clear conscience, and a heart for the lost. But then finally, help, namely the help of the scriptures from which these other folks have departed, right? Um, Peter continues, verse 15, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, in which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. It's interesting. Um, many have wondered why, why Peter brings up Paul at, at this point in the letter. Well, it is pretty certain that these false teachers were using Paul's letters to defend their corrupt distortions of Christian liberty, turning people into slaves of sin. And uh, they were twisting his teaching to say, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace, and therefore have at it, right? They may have been taking it to say that we should just continue in sin, that grace may abound, or something else. But there have been several famous cases of using Paul to justify a wicked or uh, technical term, libertine or antinomian theology. And so uh, he says, uh, we need the right help of the scriptures. And his admission that some of those writings of Paul are hard to understand gives me comfort. Um, I mean, I wouldn't have said it, but I'm glad he said it. Uh, it's true. Well, th these false teachers were abusing Paul's writings. He calls them untaught, unstable teachers, twisting some of these difficult texts in order to make their sins look good. And they might have been even pitting Paul against Peter, <coughs> much as children pit dad against mom to get their own way. I know you've never done that. I'm just saying, at the church in Corinth, some of them said, hey, we follow Paul. Some of them said, well, we, we follow Peter, Cephas, right? Uh, Peter, Peter here, it just it very not naturally affirms that just what he's saying is just what Paul has been saying. Peter affirms that their teaching is in agreement. And he's not merely emphasizing here that Paul and Peter are of one mind. He says, you know, Paul's writings are of one piece with the rest 
of the Scriptures. Sometimes people tell us that the apostles didn't have any sense that they were writing Scripture. That has no support in the Scriptures themselves. They are quite aware. And Peter's message to us is this. Since the day of the Lord is coming, we need to understand God's Word rightly and not be led away by untaught, unstable people and the, taken in by the error of the wicked. We need to maintain the hope of his coming, the holiness of a clear conscience, the heart we need for the lost, and to lay hold of the help that comes from the true understanding of the scriptures. These first Christians, poor and persecuted as they were, were inspired by their anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need such eagerness, too. These are the things that will feed it and help us. But in conclusion, um, you know, the vast majority of people in our country, in the world for that matter, believe that there is a God, and many hope one day to come to the Lord. Do, Do you know this? I was struck by a a large survey by LifeWay a few years ago, not long ago. It said a full one-third of non-Christians in America say that they hope or expect to be members at a church in the future. One-third of people that are making no effort that way now expect to be there in the future. And, And most people are not resolved that there's no God and they'll never repent. You know what they want? They just want to do it later. And add to this our natural love for sin and our aversion to holiness. And people find it hard to take time to be holy. Um, As the song goes, it's hard today, but people say maybe it'll be easier tomorrow. (laughs) No. As Thomas Boston said, sin is a disease and the longer it lasts, the more strength it gathers and it's harder to cure. And he that is not ready today to repent will be even less fit tomorrow. So I say that's why the Bible always has this view of salvation, which is today. The day of salvation is today, if you hear his voice. Harden not your hearts. And so Jesus and now Peter with him, he says, yes, there's going to be a delay, even a protracted delay, but you don't know when that's going to come. And we, we need to be diligent, Peter says, diligent that we are ready to meet the Lord and to be found at peace in him. Harry Ironsides writes of a time when he was just a boy, but he heard Dwight Moody speak. He had to climb up in the rafters of this large building of some 7,000 people packed into the theater in Chicago. And uh, Ironsides recorded this, uh, this anecdote here. He said that in the course of his sermon, Moody said, Now I want everyone in this room who placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to stand up. And about 3,000 of the 7,000 stood up in that crowded theater. Now he said, Okay, I want all of you who trusted in Christ before you were 15 years old to sit down. <sighs> A great thunder as half of those people, 1,500 people, sat down, and half remained standing. All right, he said, now I want all of you who trusted in Christ before you were 20 years old to sit down. Cut the room in half again. About 750 remained. And so it went, uh, 30 years old, 
40 years old, by the time he got to 50, only 15 people of the original 3,000 were left standing in the whole house. His point to his audience was this. Those people who keep putting the Lord off, thinking tomorrow, tomorrow, usually grow only harder and harder of heart and die as they lived. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens, the heart hardens. And so it is that Peter would have us ready for the coming day of the Lord. And I often ask you questions like this. If God is not worth loving, well, why would you want to love him later? But if he is worth loving, is he not worth loving now? If Christ is worth following, isn't he worth following now? If you want to be for, with him forever in heaven, in whose presence is fullness of joy, would you not want to walk with him now? If you want to live in perfect holiness and righteousness, the home of righteousness forever, wouldn't you begin to pursue that now? What is it that you would count more desirable than Christ's kingdom, more worthy than the king? I ask similar questions to you Christians. Are you living today in the light of this great return of Christ? Are you a people constantly, diligently setting before yourself hope and holiness and heart and help? If you are, then we can conclude with the prayer of the first Christians, Maranatha, come, O Lord. And I'll conclude with a prayer that's taken from that old book, The Valley of Vision, that goes like this. Let us pray. O Lord, turn our hearts from vanity, from dissatisfactions, from uncertainties of the present state to an eternal interest in Christ. Let us remember that life is short and unforeseen and is only an opportunity for usefulness. Give us a holy passion to redeem the time, to awake at every call to charity or love and piety and godliness so that we may diffuse the gospel and show neighborly love to all. Let us live a life of self-distrust but dependence upon yourself and your spirit and Christ's death and cross now and forever.